invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to the book of Esther, the book of Esther. And uh, Esther might be a little bit more difficult to find for some of us, so uh, if you're using one of the Bibles that's provided, uh, you'll find Esther on page 410, page 410. I'll give you a minute to turn there. So this morning, we are going to begin a four-week series in the book of Esther. Um, I was thinking about it this last week. I've been preaching regularly, like on a consistent basis, basically weekly for almost 20 years, and uh, I have never preached a message on the book of Esther. And so this is a first for me. And as I was preparing this last week for this series and been studying the book of Esther even prior uh, to this last week, one of the things that I have discovered is that the book of Esther is full of surprises. Some of you may already know this. For example, the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible in which there is no mention of God. The word God does not appear one time. Yahweh, the name of God, does not appear. Not only that, there is no reference to prayer in the book of Esther, which is especially strange because there are any number of references to fasting, but no references to prayer. There is not one recorded miracle in the book of Esther. There is not a reference to the law, or we might say the Bible. There is not a reference to the temple. There is not a reference to Jerusalem. When you read the book of Esther, it seems that it is an entirely secular book. When you read the book of Esther, it seems that God is nowhere to be found. And yet, a closer reading reveals that the author of the book of Esther uses the supposed absence of God to actually convince us that God is always present in the big things of life and in the little details of life, fulfilling and accomplishing His plans and purposes for His people. You see, when you read the book of Esther more closely, you discover that God is not absent. He's just hidden. And he's behind the scenes accomplishing his will. So that's surprising. Another thing that's surprising about the book of Esther is that a careful reading of the book reveals that Esther is not the sweet, innocent Jewish girl that some of us may have been led to believe. That's something that was particularly surprising to me as I got into this book more. In fact, Esther is a much more complicated figure. There was, there's this song, actually, that Bob Dylan wrote years ago, uh, and the title of the song is sweetheart like you. And some of y'all, I'm sure, know this song. In the chorus of the song, Bob Dylan asks this question over and over again. What's a sweetheart like you doing in a dump like this? I love that song. And as, as we read the book of Esther, that's, that's kind of the question that comes to our minds over and over again. Esther, what's a sweet Jewish girl like you? doing in a mess like this. 
It's actually the complexity and the moral ambiguity, the questionable character of Esther that that makes the book of Esther intriguing and, and adds to its mystery. And ultimately, it is the ambiguity of Esther's character that points us to the true hero in the story, not Esther, but God himself. That's one of the things I want us to see this morning, is that God's purpose prevails. This is what I want us to see as we look at the first two chapters of the book of Esther this morning. God's purpose prevails in Persia despite Esther's moral compromise. God's purpose prevails in Persia despite Esther's moral compromise. Or, maybe a little bit more down to home, or, or, or right, or a little closer to home, rejoice because God gets it right even when his people don't. Rejoice because God gets it right even when his people don't. Now, I want us to look at the first two chapters of Esther this morning in three parts. We're going to look at it with under three headings, and the three headings are as follows. If you're taking notes, this will serve as our outline. First of all, we'll look at two worlds. Secondly, two identities. And then third, one prevailing purpose. So two worlds, two identities, and one prevailing purpose. Now, before we start looking at each one of those headings, I want us to take a moment here and just kind of get our historical bearings. So as we read the book of Esther, where do we find ourselves in world history? Now, some of you might know that the southern kingdom of Israel, which was Judah, was captured by Babylon in 586 BC. Okay, so Babylon conquered Judah, conquered the southern kingdom of Israel. Now, about 50 years after that, the kingdom of Persia conquered Babylon. So Babylon conquers Judah, then Persia conquers Babylon. And for about the next 200 years, Persia dominates the ancient east. All right? Now, after Persia conquered Babylon, Cyrus, who was the king of Persia at that time, he said that some of the Jews who had been dispersed across the Babylonian and Persian empire as a result of being conquered, some of them who had been dispersed and exiled from their their home could return back to Jerusalem. And so uh, they start to do that. And there are books in the Bible that record this migration, like Ezra and Nehemiah. These books in the Bible record the Jews returning back to their homeland and starting to build the city of Jerusalem again and starting to build the temple and so forth. But there were other Jews who had been dispersed across the empire who did not return. And Esther is one of those Jews. She is one of those Jews who finds herself dispersed somewhere across the Persian empire. Actually, Esther and her cousin Mordecai find themselves in the city of Susa, which was one of the capitals of the Persian empire. And they find themselves under the rule of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus, his Persian name is King Xerxes. And he ruled in Persia between 586 BC and 465 BC. Okay, so this would have been, in summary here, what we see is that this would have been about 450 to 500 years before Jesus was born. Uh, King Xerxes is ruling the Persian Empire. 
And these two Jews, Esther and her cousin Mordecai, find themselves in Susa, which is in modern-day Iran now, a city, Susa, in the Persian Empire. Okay? So that's where we find ourselves. Now, in the book of Esther, there are two worlds. This is our first point, two worlds. And this is what we're introduced to in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. So I'm going to read these verses for us. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violent hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Okay, so what we see here, what we're introduced here in these first nine verses is one of the two kingdoms that we see in Esther. And the two kingdoms in Esther that we see is what I would describe as the pleasures of Persia on one side. So this is, this is, the, this is one world, one kingdom. The pleasures of Persia and on the other side, the sufferings of the people of God. Okay, So these are the two worlds that we see in Esther. And here in these first nine verses, we're introduced to the kingdom of Persia, to the world, the pleasures of Persia. And the kingdom of Persia was plush. That's the point of these first nine verses. The wealth, the beauty, the decadence was ridiculous. You see the description of King Xerxes' wealth in verses 6 through 7, where there's this long description of the white cotton uh, cotton curtains and the violent hangings and the uh, cords of fine linen and purple and so on and so forth. And then the author goes on to indicate that the wealth and the hedonism of King Xerxes was, was so great that he threw these lavish parties, these, these ridiculous parties. In fact, there's, it's kind of comical how over the top his lifestyle is. In, in verse 4, it says he, he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. This would have been for six months. King Xerxes is bringing people into the palace and throwing this long extended party and showing everyone how much he has his great wealth, his great splendor, his great glory. 
And then that's not enough, right? That's then followed this six-month display of his greatness and glory and power and decadence. That's followed by a seven-day feast. Now, let me, let me ask you, have you ever thrown a six-month party? Have you ever attended a six-month party? The, the idea here is that, that the wealth of Persia is just overwhelming. And then the alcohol. You see it there near the end of the verses that are here in this section. Xerxes is offering the best booze that money can buy, and there's only one rule for drinking at this party that he is throwing. And the one rule is this. There are no rules. Verse 8, drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. In other words, there's no restraints. This is like a giant keg party, a frat party. Everybody was to enjoy themselves to the fullest. So here we're introduced to the pleasures of Persia. This is one of the worlds that we find in the book of Esther. Now, the other world that we find in the book of Esther is the sufferings of the people of God. And in contrast to the pleasures of Persia, we are now going to be introduced to Mordecai and Esther. So turn over to chapter 2, chapter 2, in verses 5 through 7, and we read these words. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemaiah, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now, we're going to come back to these verses, but just notice right away here how the author of, F, of, of Esther emphasizes that Mordecai and Esther were both exiles. Notice this in these verses. Look there in, in verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. Now, skip down to verse 6. Who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Do you see how he's emphasizing that? It's stated three times. You could read it this way. Who had been exiled away from Jerusalem among the captives, exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had exiled. The idea is that Mordecai and Esther have been taken out of their home land, taken out of the place where they were originally identified with the people of God, and now they have been carried, exiled, uh, dislocated to a place that is not their home. And one of the great challenges, and we see this throughout the Old Testament as, as it relates to this period of time, one of the great challenges that the Jewish exiles faced was how to honor God when their lives were lived at the intersection of these two conflicting worlds. These two conflicting worlds of the pleasures of Persia and the sufferings of the people of God. Some have referred to it as the, the city of man and the city of God. The, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And so this is, where, this is where Mordecai and Esther find themselves at the intersection of these two 
worlds. And this conflict had, conflict had implications for everything in their lives. Who they would worship. What they would eat. What they would drink. Who they would marry. It had implications for everything in their lives. And this is where they find themselves. At the intersection of these two worlds. Now, as Christians, we understand that we, in many ways, inhabit the same space. Of course, the the particular kingdoms and rulers and, and even cultural preferences have changed, but the conflict is the same. So, for example, in many ways, we love our own country. We prayed for our nation this morning, and we're grateful for the country that we live in. But we also recognize at the same time as Christians that we belong to another kingdom. We have another king. And the ways and the culture of this king and his kingdom is different than the ways and the culture of the kingdom and the society that we find ourselves in. Last semester in our cohorts, we studied together the letter of 1 Peter. And you might remember how Peter addressed those that he was writing. He was writing to first century Christians and he addressed them as elect exiles of the dispersion. That's the first verse in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. In other words, Peter's using this same language, this same concept to convey the idea that these first century Christians, they, they, in, many ways found that they in many ways had a home. They were a part of the Roman Empire. They lived in the Mediterranean world. But he identifies them as exiles. In other words, they, they lived there. They had a home. They were part of a kingdom. But they, they ultimately belonged to another kingdom. And their home was somewhere else. Their home and citizenship was with the kingdom of God. And so whether it's like we think about the, the Jews in Persia during this period of time in the book of Esther. Or whether we think about the first century Christians who were living in the Roman Empire, we, like them, are exiles. We belong to another king. We belong to another kingdom. But for now, we dwell in the kingdom of this world. And the challenge is, the challenge for every single one of us, is how will we honor God when we find ourselves at the intersection of these two worlds as they conflict with one another. Of course, the temptation is to become settled here in this kingdom. To become more identified with the city of man rather than the city of God. To sell our souls to obtain the riches and the prestige and the glory and the beauty and the pleasures of Persia. Because the reality is, if we're honest, we don't always like being exiles. It's hard being exiles. It's easier to be at home in the world. It's easier to settle in. It's easier to worship the gods that everyone else worships, to adopt the moral instincts of our society and culture around us. It's easier to marry one of their own. It's easier to stop fighting upstream all the time and just relax and go with the flow. You know, get with the program. That's why the Lord Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, 
but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you, Father, sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. This is where we find ourselves as Christians. At the intersection of these two worlds, called to be in the world, but as the Lord Jesus prays, not of the world. Giving our ultimate allegiance to the Lord Jesus himself. Secondly, two identities. So we see two worlds in the book of Esther, but then secondly, we see two identities. Now look there again in chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. And here, this is where we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. And I'll read these verses for us again. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemaiah, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. She had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So Esther, in particular, finds herself at the intersection of these two worlds, and the question emerges, with whom will she identify? Will she identify with the people of God and with the sufferings of the people of God and be a woman of character, or will she identify with the pleasures of Persia and be a woman of compromise? These are the two identities. These are the, these are the two choices that she has. Now, as the story progresses in Esther chapter 1, King Xerxes' extravagance, his debauchery, continues to be illustrated in particular by how he treats his queen. So if you go back to chapter 1, according to chapter 1 verse 10, this is, this is still a description of this lavish party that he's thrown. In chapter 1, verse 10, we read that the heart of the king was merry with wine. Basically, that means he was drunk as a skunk, okay? Because he was drunk out of his mind. And he gets the great idea that he will request that his queen, Queen Vashti, come to him and his buddies, who have been drinking now for days, and that she will show off her beauty to him and all his buddies. Now, when you think about this, you shouldn't, we should recognize that this is not like, you know, the, the TV Christmas special where the first lady invites the nation into the White House and eloquently and gracefully shows the nation the, you know, Christmas ornaments in the White House and everyone's impressed with the first lady. That's not what's being requested here, Okay. More what's being requested here, it's more like an adult R-rated performance that would please King Xerxes' drunk drinking buddies. Okay, Even according to Persian standards, the request from the king here is humiliating, it's degrading. I mean, if the king had requested this of a concubine, maybe it would have been acceptable, but not the queen. 
So what happens? Well, we go on and read further, and we see that Queen Vashti actually refuses to comply to the king's request. She refuses to merely be a trophy wife for King Xerxes. And so what, what, what happens at this point? Does, does King Xerxes wait a little while and, you know, he smooths it out with Vashti later on? Maybe, maybe go back to her and ask for forgiveness once he sobers up and they reconcile with one another? Well, of course not. Many of you know the story. Instead, King Xerxes dethrones Vashti. If she won't perform for him and his friends, he's done with her. He dismisses her as queen. Now then the story gets particularly interesting because out of this now, so he's, he's removed her as queen, out of this, the king and his advisors come up with a plan. And their plan is that they will gather for themselves, for the king in particular, the most beautiful young virgins across the Persian Empire, and they will have a competition. And then he will choose from these women his new queen. Now, look there in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, and we have the plans. Chapter 2, verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, I don't watch The Bachelorette, but this is like the ultimate bachelorette competition, okay? You know, like the TV show where you got the guy, and then I don't know how many girls there are, 10, 20, 30, 40 single women, and they go through this competition, and he whittles it down, and then he picks who he wants to, to marry. And Esther gets swept up into this competition. Look there in chapter 2, verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, that is this plan, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Now, understand, Esther didn't apply for this, right? Like the women for Bachelorette, I imagine they have to apply to compete or whatever. She just, she is chosen. She gets swept up into this. And many commentators speculate that there would have been hundreds, perhaps even a thousand women who would have been a part of this competition. Now, the rules of the competition are further explained in chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. Look there, chapter 2, verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shah Ashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So you see what's happening here. So the, all, these, all these women are chosen and the women that are chosen for this competition, now they constitute a harem, okay? 
And the idea is that each one of these women will go through a year process of beautification and preparation for their night with the king. Then each girl will get one night with the king. After spending the night with the king, then they will be assigned to a second harem. Now, they may never see the king again unless he requests for them to come back. And the one who pleases the king the most, she will be identified, she will be throned as queen. Now you have to understand that once Esther is chosen for this competition, she is confronted with the the conflict between these two worlds like never before. Once she is chosen for this competition, she is confronted with the reality of the pleasures of Persia and the sufferings of the people of God coming together in conflict like she has never experienced before. And the author of the book of Esther, actually when he introduces us to Esther, seems to hint at this conflict that will take place in Esther's heart throughout the book. A number of commentators have pointed to this. Esther is actually, it's interesting, Esther is actually, when she's introduced, is the only person in the book of Esther who is introduced with two names. Look there in chapter 2, verse 7. We read, He, Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So we learn several things about Esther there. She's Mordecai's cousin. She's an orphan. She's beautiful. But notice she has two names, right? Hadassah, which was her Hebrew name. And that represented her Jewish heritage. And then on the other hand, she had a name Esther, which was her Persian name probably related to the Persian goddess Ishtar. So she has a Hebrew name and a Persian name, a Jewish name and a pagan name, a name that identified her with the people of God and a name that identified her with the pleasures of Persia. And this is representative of the conflict that takes place in Esther's life from this point forward. And so what will Esther choose? Will Esther choose to identify with the people of God and be a woman of character? Or will she choose to identify with the pleasures of Persia and be a woman of compromise? Well, actually, that question has been debated for centuries. Jews and Christians have debated this question. They have debated uh, Esther's actions from this point forward. Which was it? Which did she choose? Well, immediately, as we look at what happens here, immediately this competition has to raise concerns for even the most average God-fearing Jew. I mean, Esther's participation in the process almost certainly required that she would assimilate herself into the ways of Persia. Just a few things to think about here by way of example. First of all, it meant that she would not observe the Jewish calendar. We know from uh, chapter 2, verse 10, that she, she concealed her identity as a Jew. Not only did she agree to participate in the process, but she did not identify herself as a Jew. No one around her knew that she was a Jew. 
And so it meant that she would not observe the Jewish calendar, which meant that she would not observe the Sabbath, which was a significant part of being a God-fearing Jew. Not only that, she would not observe the dietary restrictions and food laws that God had given to his people. She would eat like a Persian, and she would eat with the Persians. Not only that, but as a young Jewish virgin, in agreeing to participate in this process, she was agreeing to spend the night with an uncircumcised Philistine. And in so doing, she was agreeing to use all the powers of her persuasion that she possessed as a young, beautiful female to win his approval. And it's apparent from the text that this is the course that Esther chose. And she was successful. Look at chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibbeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, many people have actually tried to cover for Esther, all right? So what Esther does here and the process that she participates in and so forth, many people have tried to cover for her. I I actually still remember when I was uh, a child in Sunday school, and the Sunday school teacher was trying to teach us the story of Esther, and, and I feel sorry for her. I mean, this is a hard, I mean, how do you communicate? How do you teach this to children, right? And so I remember the teacher saying that the reason why King Xerxes chose Esther was because she wasn't like all the other women. She was a woman of character and virtue. She was modest. She was like a Proverbs 31 woman. That's why King Xerxes chose Esther. Now, some people have tried to make that argument. But I would just say, and I would encourage you to read chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Esther. I don't think there's anything in the book of Esther that points us in that direction. In addition, so this last week I I was thinking about, okay, how how have different people thought about the story of Esther and so I decided I've got to watch VeggieTales, okay? So I watched VeggieTales. I watched it on YouTube on speed 1.5. And I watched the, uh, the story of Esther. And again, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to knock VeggieTales, okay? Our kids watched VeggieTales and so forth. But I don't believe, according to VeggieTales version that King Xerxes chose Esther because she won a talent competition by singing Jewish hymns with a beautiful voice to King Xerxes. Everything in the text points in the direction that King Xerxes was looking for one thing in his new queen. He wanted a hot wife 
And he didn't want a wife who was prudish like his previous wife, Vashti. He wanted a wife who would please him. And Esther did. And she was chosen as queen. Now, some people will say, yeah, but, I mean, did Esther have any other choice? I mean, we sympathize with Esther in this situation. Look at what happened to Queen Vashti. If she refused to be a part of the harem, she could have been imprisoned. She could have been killed. But isn't that kind of the point? Isn't kind of the point that men and women of character are men and women who choose to do the right thing even when it's hard? Even when it's difficult? Even when it costs us something? Isn't that what it means to identify with the people of God and their suffering? I think this becomes all the more clear when we compare Esther to other biblical characters that found themselves in exile and had similar choices to make. You remember Joseph? He found himself in exile. His brothers sold him into slavery. He was in exile in Egypt and finally he got a break and he was in Potiphar's house and he was placed over Potiphar's house. He was looking over everything and Potiphar's wife started to seduce him day after day after day. And he refused. And where did it get him? As an act of revenge, she falsely accused him, and he was thrown in prison. I imagine that was difficult. But God was faithful to Joseph. And eventually Joseph became second in command in Egypt over all the land. Or how about Daniel? Daniel found himself in exile. Daniel was in exile in Babylon, and he was a man that was uniquely gifted, and so he was put in this special group of people, similar to Esther here, who was put in this special harem because of her beauty, and they were fed certain food. They were fed food from the table of the king of Babylon, food that Jews were not supposed to eat, and Daniel refused to eat the food, and he requested instead to eat only fruits and vegetables so that he might honor the food laws that God had given to his people. And you remember Daniel's friends? They were in exile too. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were asked to bow the knee to a golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. But they refused to do so even though their lives were threatened. Even though they were thrown into a fiery furnace. But God delivered them. And he was faithful to Daniel and his friends. And eventually, Daniel and his friends became some of the most significant and influential men in the kingdom of Babylon. You see, the point is, Esther had options. If she was willing to suffer with the people of God, she had options. And my friends, the reality is, we do too. When we find ourselves at the intersection of the confliction of these two worlds, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, the pleasures of Persia and the sufferings of the people of God, we have options too. And we must choose. Will we identify with God and with His people? Or will we identify with this world? We find 
Esther competed like these other girls in Xerxes' harem, we are inclined to ask, Esther, what is a good Jewish girl like you doing in a dump like this? That leads us to our third point, one prevailing purpose, one prevailing purpose. In chapter 2, verse 17, I read it for us earlier. Let me just read it quickly here. We see what came of all of this. Chapter 2, verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, as the book of Esther will progress, we will see that Esther grows and matures as a person. We'll see that although at this point in the book she seems all too eager to compromise, later Esther demonstrates remarkable character and courage and resolve as she identifies with the people of God. And this is critical because God will use Esther's courage and moral resolve and he will use her position as queen, which she obtained through moral compromise, to fulfill his purpose and plan. What was his purpose and plan? It was the preservation and protection of his people so that through his people he might send a savior to redeem the world. You see later on what we'll find in the book of Esther is that the Persian empire begins to to press upon the Jewish people and, and threaten the Jewish people with annihilation, with complete extinction. And at that time, God will use the moral compromise of Esther, which allowed her to ascend to the place of queen to protect and preserve his people. So that through that people, then he might send a savior who would die for his people and redeem them through his perfect sacrifice. I think we should acknowledge that God did not approve of Esther's methods or her moral compromise, but I think we should also acknowledge that God did purpose and use Esther's questionable character to accomplish his ultimate plan. And let me just say, my friends, and maybe some of you have sensed this already this morning as we've been talking about this. This is, it's not maybe our natural first reading of the text. It's not maybe the way we've thought about Esther in the past. Maybe we've only thought of her as a hero. But understanding Esther in this way, and I believe the way that the passage is, is teaching here, it is such good news. You know, when, we, when we first see that Esther is maybe not the, the perfect, righteous, virtuous Jewish girl that we thought she was, it might be a little bit unsettling. But then when we realize really what's happening here, it should bring us a deep sense of relief and comfort and encouragement and hope because the Bible is full of people like Esther. Full of people who when they find themselves at the intersection of moral 
compromise and character. Choose compromise rather than character. And yet God still saves them and redeems them and uses them for his purpose and his glory. And there are many people like that in this room this morning. I am sure that all of us in this room this morning have found ourselves at the place where the city of man and the city of God, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world collide and we choose compromise rather than character. And some of you, you got, show, you got scars to show for it, right? Maybe right now as a result of, of poor decisions in the past, you're... you're you're carrying some significant financial burden in your life. Maybe, maybe you've got a prison record to show for it. Maybe a broken family like a divorce or wayward children. Or maybe it's just the shame and the embarrassment of past poor decisions. And isn't it good news to know that God in his grace and mercy, although he does not approve of our moral compromises and failures, God in his grace can use our moral compromises and failures to accomplish his good purposes and plans in our lives and to bring glory to his name. God did it in Esther's life. And through Esther, he did it for the people of God. And he can do it for you. Turn to him, look to him in faith, trust him. Give him everything in your life. Your worst failures, your worst compromises, the times where you fell flat on your face, the times where you look back and say, I can't believe I did that, that's shameful. And watch what God can do with your life. Watch how God displays his grace and mercy and power through you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for the story of Esther. And Lord, we especially thank you for the story of Esther this morning because we are so much like Esther. Lord, we want to not revel in those times where we have failed you. We want to repent. And Lord, when we find ourselves in the future at the intersection of the world and your kingdom, we want to swear allegiance to your kingdom. Help us, Lord. I imagine there are some here even this morning who are fighting that battle fiercely right now. Lord, I pray by your grace that we would be identified with your kingdom. But then, Lord, those ways in which we have failed, in which we have come up short, in which we have compromised, oh God, we pray that you would forgive us. Have mercy upon us. And Lord, we pray that even those ways in which we have failed you, oh God, would you take them and use them for your glory? Would you take what Satan would want to use to destroy us and would you actually use it for our good and for the glory of your name? Father, we give you all that we are, all our, even our failures, even our brokenness, even our compromise. And we pray that you would demonstrate your grace and mercy in our lives. Show yourself mighty. Show yourself full of grace. Show yourself full of mercy and goodness. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.